Father, thank you for this time together. Thank you for um, hungry hearts to come to listen um, and to hear your word and to learn of you. Uh, thank you for your spirit that meets us uh, every morning and is indwelling us and growing us and causing us to love Jesus more. We pray that his work would be effective in us this morning as we um, look at your word on a, a very uh, special thing that you've revealed to us and we just pray that we would have um, open hearts open minds to uh, to hear what your spirit would say this morning and we pray that it all uh, displays the glory and the beauty of jesus it's in his name we pray amen all right we we are we are technically uh, done with exodus um we, we finished up last week um the last the last chapter and um, and so what I'd like to do today, I, in in the in the last few weeks that we that we went through in Exodus, that last leg of the tabernacle being manufactured and then erected, uh, we noticed a pattern. Did you notice a pattern? I noticed a pattern. Did you notice a pattern of what happened? They'd make the stuff. Then what would they do with the stuff? They took. The, well, they took it to. Welcome. Come on Welcome. in. Um, <laughs> Donation. <laughs> wow. I hope uh, I hope we have enough eggs to fill all those cartons. Um, there was a pattern. The, the The pattern was they make the stuff, they present it to Moses for for approval and blessing. Remember that, and then Moses blesses the people. The work is finished. Moses blesses the people. Then God gives the command, erect the tabernacle and put the stuff where it needs to be and consecrate the people who need to work in there. And then again, they present it. Moses, it says, Moses did the work. The work was finished. They present it again and God approves it and blesses it by indwelling the tabernacle. So you see this, this presentation, the, the, the work, the presentation, the blessing and approval of, of each of those stages. And this is like chapter 35 through 40. We see this pattern happening. Um, from start to finish, a major theme of Exodus is the glory of God displayed in His merciful and powerful redemption of His people. We saw that from chapter 1. He was the, the, um, the overcoming redeemer. Um, and, and, and that refrain, remember, walking all the stuff, through all the stuff with Pharaoh, that, that they may know that I am the Lord. Then he will know that I am the Lord. You know, those kinds of things. This glory of God being uh, the, the purpose for which he raises Pharaoh up to destroy him, to show his glory to the nations. He redeems Israel to show his glory to the nations. So from start to finish, you see this, the glory of God is at issue. And here at the very end, this glorious cloud of His presence descends on the tabernacle and it leads them. He, he lifts off the tabernacle and they go. He descends on the tabernacle they stay. And it's the glory of God um, there. So you see this pattern at the end of God's glory being prepared to be received at the very end through this manufacture, creation, work is finished, and then you present and it's blessed. Then again, erect, build, uh, you know, put it all in place. God comes down, He blesses, and He approves it. There it is. And so, this 
finishing of the work and presenting to God approval and blessing is something that we, we talked about last time along the way that, that harkens back to Genesis 1 and 2, right? We, we talked about that a little bit where the work that God did was finished. He sat back and it's good. It's good. It's good. It's very good. Be fruitful and multiply. You know, this, this whole idea of, of blessing the work that's finished. So it looks back... But the thing that kind of stuck out to me was that it also looks forward. And, and, here's, and here's what got my, my head going. Um, look at 1 Corinthians 15. And start in verse 24. First Corinthians 15, of course, is that chapter that, that deals with the resurrection. If there's no resurrection, we are the most, above all, to be pitied. That whole idea. Paul keeps moving forward past our resurrection and meeting Christ. And then in verse 24, he says, Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him who put all things under subjection of Christ? Who does it say? Who put all things under the subjection of Christ? God the, Father. God the Father. So, here we have Christ conquering everything. Everything's put into subjection of Him by God the Father, except who? God the Father. So what happens? When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him. A lot of pronouns, but that way it works. When the Son puts all thi- when the Father puts all things in subjection to the Son, then the Son will be in subjection to the Father, that God may be all in all. So what's the picture? All things are put in subjection to Christ. Right? How does that begin? What event begins this? First of all, what's the kingdom of God he's referring to? What's the kingdom? That's a big question, but just in the context of this. I know Jacob's like, what? Just in the context of this passage, what are, we, what are we discussing? We're discussing the raising of the people of God, right? In, in the last day. So the kingdom here, in this context, would refer to whom? The church, right? The people that he's redeeming for himself. And so here we have this picture of the work being done, right? Cross work is finished. It is finished. And then we have the assembly. Then comes the end. And he presents the kingdom, the church, to God the Father. Why? That God 
may be all in all. What does that mean? God may be all in all. He gets the glory from every angle. All things are subjected to Christ. Christ submits it all to the Father. Everything is subjected to God and it's displayed for all the universe to see what's going on. That's God being glorified among His creatures. Right? Christ is reigning. All things are being placed in subjection to the Son. How are we being placed in subjection to the Son, by the way? Just, how does that, what is that, just from what you know from Scripture, according to the Word, is, there's a Trinitarian aspect to this, though, isn't there? Uh, a great theologian said it this way, the Father chooses them, the Son gets bruised for them, the Spirit renews and bears fruit in them, right? That's how the subjection is happening. Yes, yeah, it's, it's old, old pre, pre-Pope, I think, is what... Is what that comes in. Lynn of Shy. That's exactly right. Very good. <laughs> Lynn of Shy. That's awesome. Okay. These are the roles. These are the roles in salvation that we see. Did I snort? I just snorted. These are the roles that we see in salvation undertaken by each person of the Trinity. Salvation is a work of the triune God. Why? Why would he do this? What's going on here? Why is this presenting, accepting, and all this kind of stuff going on? What is Paul talking about in 1 Corinthians 15? Why is this necessary? Turn to Titus 1. It's Bible drill day. Shamon. Titus 1. Titus 1. We are currently in Titus. In the main service, uh, Philip is, I think he just finished Titus. Just finished Titus. So we're in 2 Timothy. I know, it's all lies. Titus 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. Now, that for the sake of the faith of God's elect, what, what would that be? What do you need faith for in, initially? We're not born with faith. It's a gift, right? So what are we given faith for? To believe in Him. To believe in him and it initially leads to... Salvation. So, Paul is working for the faith of God's elect, for, so that they will be saved. And what else does he say? He's working for their knowledge of the truth which accords to godliness. Well, what is that? Right, right living. Sanctification is the $10 word we use. Salvation, sanctification, and then what else? In the hope of eternal life. What's that? Glorification. Glorification. You see this, this golden chain of redemption thing going on that we talk about in Romans 8. Paul is working diligently as a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ for this purpose. And he tags it to something. What is it related to? Which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began? To whom? To whom did he promise this? 
Always a good answer in Sunday school. I mean, it can't be man, because it's before ages began, which would be eternity past, and we, you know, by definition, we started in time. It couldn't be angels, because it's eternity past, you know, just kind of this idea of, he didn't promise us to angels. He promised to the Son. Paul is talking about Christ. What he's pointing to here, and this is kind of what we're going to discuss this morning, what he's pointing to here is one of the most profound, to me, mysteries and beautiful pictures and, and explanations of God in the Bible. It's called, the smart guys call it, the eternal covenant. There's a presentation here. This ultimate ending is, is a picture of an agreement that was made between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in eternity past to bring about a people reflecting Christ and, and, and as a love gift between the Father and the Son. Um, and, and it's the church. There are hints of this throughout the Bible, but, but if you put them together, it reflects the distinctions of each person of the Trinity. Well, let's, let's look at what we're given. The Father's promise to elect a people. The Father is the initiator of this covenant. He promises, the Son re-promises, and the Spirit witnesses the promises and seals the transaction. Uh, Psalm 2.8 Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. The Father not only gives the elect to the Son, but He gives the Son to His people in a very special way. Right? particularly as it relates to this covenant. How, how is Moses' work how, as mediator? What, what is, who is he to God? Who does he represent? The, who is he to God? He's a mediator to God for whom? The people. So he represents the people to God. And Moses to the people is whom? Also a mediator between God to the people, right? So you have here, uh, Moses is a, is a picture of Christ's office as mediator between God and man. There is one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. You've seen that in Scripture as well. Um, the Father not only gives the elect to the Son, but He gives the Son to the elect in a special way, particularly as it relates to this covenant. Uh, Isaiah 42, 6, I am the Lord... I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you, as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. So the Son represents the Father to the people and the people to the Father. He's the mediator. Even more, He's the substance of the covenant itself. He's what's being given. Christ is the covenant. And He mediates Himself between God and man. Um, God is holy, yes? Can we agree with non uh, I know it's I know it's shady these days that God is holy because he, he is, Scripture says, a holy, holy, holy. It doesn't say love, love, love. It says holy, holy, holy. Um, he's holy, and I'm not. And you're not yet. Well, yes, you are, but in Christ you're holy. You're not born holy. God is holy and, and, and demands satisfaction for our rebellion. Yes, I mean, that's 
the point of the cross, the satisfaction for rebellion, one of the points. Um, if God repi- requires payment for the sins of his people, the Father represents the Trinity in this eternal covenant as the one to whom payment for sins must be made. He's the judge. He's the, the, um, the creditor, so to speak, of the, the offense that's been done by humanity, by his people, against his sovereignty as God. He represents the triune God in that office as the creditor. The son, it was decided, would be the one to pay the debt. He paid it to the Father for his people. The, the, the Gospel of John tells us, um, especially in the high priestly prayer in chapter 17, which just hang out there for about a month. Just, and oh my gosh, what a great passage. All right. The Gospel of John tells us, especially in that high priestly prayer, that the Father gave the Son a work to do and sent him to do it. How do you define eternal life? How does Jesus do it in John 17, 3? This is eternal life, that they know you, Father, and the one whom you have sent, Jesus Christ. Right? That refrain is all throughout the Gospel of John. Father sent me. I have been sent by the Father. If you believed in the Father, you believe in the one whom he has sent. He tells me. You see this again and again, in, in, especially in John's Gospel. It's all over the New Testament, but especially in, God's, in John's Gospel. Um, and, and a lot of it is in, in chapter 17. Throughout that chapter and, and throughout John, you see that the Father sent the Son to accomplish a mission. You also see that the Father prepared the Son to accomplish that mission. How did he prepare him? Giving him a, a, a works to do by sanctifying, him. by sanctifying him. Okay, setting him apart to be holy. As a relation to Christ, he's sanctified on behalf of us. So, wh- how is how is that accomplished? And, and what did he have to? Ha- he's God eternal, second person of the Trinity. He is a spirit, doesn't have a body like man. So, how does God prepare him for the task? He made him human. Yet without sin. Tempted like us, but without sin. Hebrews 10, 5-7. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. The author of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 40, 7 and 8. This is something that, that, is, that is, he's pulling from the Old Testament to display what's going on with Christ here uh, in, in being made fully man. The Father further promised to sustain the Son during his mission and protect him from Satan. Uh, in uh, Psalm 89, 20 and 20 through 22. This is recognized as a messianic psalm. The, the, the reference to David here refers to a, a future son of David. Verse 20 says, I have found David my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him. 
so that my hand shall be established with him, my arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him, the wicked shall not humble him. So he's prepared him a body. He's promised to sustain him during his mission and protect him from the evil one. And lastly, at least in our discussion this morning, the father covenanted with the son to give him a kingdom. Luke 22 28 through 30. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in the kingdom, and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. The word in the ESV, assigned, others have translated grant, which is very, it's kind of a, a, a takeoff on that covenant language. The Father covenanted with the Son to give him a kingdom, and this included Christ redeeming the elect, his people, the church, into this kingdom. So the Father's role to, to, to choose them, to, to send Christ, to prepare things for him to do, to prepare him a body to, to do those things, and to give him a kingdom. That's the promise. The promise is in the Father's part of this eternal covenant. What's the son's part? Well, he makes promises to fulfill the covenant. In order for the people to be redeemed, they need a redeemer. He promises to be obedient to the Father on earth. Uh, we talked last time, last week, about the 33 years before the cross. This is this active obedience of Christ to the will of the Father. Why would he do that? Well, we needed it. We needed a life that we cannot live. And Christ is our representative. Live that life. And he did it in obedience to the Father according to promises that he made to the Father when God sent him to the earth for this purpose. John's Gospel frequently records Jesus saying that he did not come to do his own will, but the will of the one who sent him. He agreed to take on the nature of a man, as we saw earlier in Hebrews 10. And we discussed that whole idea of the union of the cloud with something of the earth being a picture of Christ, fully God, fully man, last time. The Son came specifically to die for his people. That is why, uh, you know, as we talked last week, he had to be made a man to be a perfect sacrifice for that. Um, Hebrews 7, 20 through 22. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. What's a guarantor? Any of your parents ever sign a car loan with you? Someone who will pay the debt. If you welch on it, Right? If you welch on it, you've got the security net of uh, mom and dad or Aunt Methesda uh, to do, I don't just, you know, to, to, to be your guarantor, right? Right. Right. Yes. right. Yeah? So you have Christ being the guarantor of a better covenant. Covenant. The, the elect could not pay, the, 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 his people could not pay it, so Christ paid, paid it for them. Uh, Christ also agrees, well, was the cross an accident? Oops, Israel rejected me. 
Oops. He, you know, he's just trying the best he can. He doesn't want to violate free will. So, so they crucified Jesus. And, and so we begin this, this parentheses time of, well, what are we going to do now? We'll just kind of set this aside for a minute and figure out what we're going to do with Israel. Uh, we'll call it the church age. Yeah, I'll just do that. So was this the, an accident? No. Uh, it was not an event that led to the parentheses called the church age. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Uh, Peter uh, preaches in Acts 2, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God's purpose, man's responsibility for doing it, but God's purpose, the definite foreknowledge of God, definite, not guess, not hey, it's kind of iffy. It was his definite plan. And Peter again prays in Acts 4, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do the people are doing whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The cross was not an accident. It was according to a definite plan of God. And Christ came to fulfill that plan. The Spirit's witness and seal of the elect. The Holy Spirit often gets ignored by the smart folks. Uh, And I think some of it is because his role that we see in Scripture is one of of witness, of behind-the-scenes kind of work. He's not there to glorify himself. He's there to make much of Jesus. He will testify of me, Jesus says, of the Spirit who comes. Um, we know that the, the Spirit is sent by the Father and the Son. And the Spirit is an equal member of the Trinity. He's not less than the Son. He's not less than the Father. He's co-equal, co-eternal. But there are different roles within, uh, within the Trinity that, we've, that we have seen uh, in Scripture. The, the Father and the Son send the Spirit. So uh, John fifteen twenty six says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. That's his function, is to bear witness of Jesus. The Spirit is frequently referred to as the witness. The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God. Yes, we know this language. We Open it, right? Whatever that means, I trust the, the Word of God, I trust what Christ has done, and, and there's this mysterious thing that goes on where the Spirit bears witness with my spirit that I am the son of, uh, a son or, or daughter. We use it gender-neutral son there. That's possible with the English language. Um, While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Hebrews 2.4 The Holy Spirit then makes up a third legal witness to this eternal covenant, to this agreement among the persons of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is a third witness. Um, uh, You know, out of the mouths of two or three witnesses, a thing is established. You have three witnesses of the Trinity to this agreement. Um, We know what the Spirit promised to do in the covenant of redemption or the eternal covenant from what he actually does in time. Nothing is done by any member of the Trinity 
that was not predetermined and planned out. There's no shoot from the hip with God, right? It, it is a, a plan that he is working out, and what the Spirit does, he does by agreement, he does by a predetermined plan. Just as the Spirit witnessed to Christ in time, so he witnessed to the Son and the Father in the eternal covenant. Uh, he has been referred to as the great public notary of heaven by the Puritan Thomas Brooks. I thought it was really good. The great public notary of heaven. Uh, he witnessed to the agreement regarding the atonement and in time had a part in it. Uh, Hebrews 9, 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? He sealed the eternal covenant with God's oath and in time sealed elect. What does it say? Ephesians 1 again. Um, in, in, in him you also, right? What does it say? In him you also. After you heard the word of truth. Uh-huh. Believed. And believed in him. In him also having believed you sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. You're doing NASB. You're freaking me out. That's it. Is that New King James? Oh, that's even worse. I just can't. I can't. I can't. Uh. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. He sealed the agreement between God the Father and God the Son, and he seals us in the expression of that agreement. All right. It is by the power of the Holy Spirit that the covenant of redemption is being given effect among God's people to draw them, uh, giving them the new birth, uh, grow them in the grace to reflect Christ, etc., all that stuff. All this is according to this eternal covenant, the covenant of redemption. And if you're in Christ, you're caught up in it. And here's the thing I want to just impress upon you. Are you ready? If you're in Christ... If you came to Jesus, if he lives in you, it's not about you. It's not about the church collective. In a very real sense, the fact that we're saved is kind of a secondary issue. (laughs) The primary issue is that we are being gathered together as a people as a love gift from the Father to the Son, right? As a wedding present, a bride from the Father to the Son. The the Son reflects the Father perfectly, yes? Yeah? (laughs) He reflects the Father perfectly. And the Father says, I want to give you something. You, You are obedient to me. I love my Son. I love you. I want to give you something. I want to give you a people, a redeemed people, a select people, to reflect you like you reflect me. But they need to be redeemed. Display your obedience to me, and I will give you the nations as an inheritance. Right? Is that what we're seeing? So he does it. He's obedient. 33 years, he dies on the cross. He purchases the redemption, pays the guaranteed amount for the penalty of our sin, 
we calculate that in, ter- in, in times of eternity. We talked about that in John, James 2.10. Um, he does it. And then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and authority and power. Why is the church important? The whole thing's not about the church. Salvation is a great benefit to us. Praise God for it. But that's not the primary purpose. The primary purpose is to the praise of His glorious grace. Is that what we see again and again in Ephesians? What we see in Romans eleven thirty six. The Father planned to glorify the Son because He loves Him. The Son, through His obedience, glorifies the Father because He loves Him. The Spirit glorifies the Son because He loves the Son and the Father. By glorifying the Son, He's glorifying the Father. The Father and the Son glorify the Spirit in displaying His power and meekness because they love Him. There is a massive cosmic thing going on with the church, with you in the church. If you're in the church, you're caught up in a very cosmic thing that's beyond any of us, bigger than any of us. Each person of the Trinity was already glorified. Why go through all of this? Is God any less glorious because He hasn't created man? No. What's going on? Why would He do this? This is a glory, a new kind of glory. This is a glory of the triune God to creatures, specifically a glorification of Christ to creatures. This is the joy set before Him that we see in Hebrews 12. The God-man is glorified. He's given a special name. We are told in Philippians 2, and all of this redounds to the glory of God the Father. It's a big deal. Why would I ever devalue, set aside, hold in disdain, mock and ridicule what God from eternity past has planned and executed at great cost and great public display of who he is. Why would I? They're just a bunch of hypocrites. Why would I ever? Oh, it's just not worth the time because it's so much work. Really? For the joy set before him, Christ goes to the cross. And we're caught up in that. And there's this huge thing. Then comes the end where Christ presents His finished work, the gift that He's been given by the Father to Him in submission. Why would I not take my sanctification seriously? It's a big deal. It's a huge deal. If you are in Christ, your salvation is an expression of the love gift of the Father to the Son. Your growth into the image of Jesus is an expression of the love gift of the Father to the Son. It matters, not because we're awesomely awesome. It matters because it's bigger than us. It matters because Jesus is awesomely awesome. 
The Father's making much of Him. The church is the gift that is given. We ought to be incredibly grateful, eager, and excited to be a part of this. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him that God may be all in all. And Romans 11.36 ends it this way, from, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. It's a big deal. Any questions or comments? Fruit to be thrown. Yes. You know, it's it's all about that. It's all about the right perspective, and that's why we need each other. Because every morning we wake up and we're fully human, and we get off track. Our thinking reverts back to the five senses and to our job and the busyness of life. But with each other and with this, all you're doing is. is is preaching the gospel to us, showing us the right perspective that it's all about Christ. Yeah. And that is that's the benefit of the church is to preach that to each other and build it build itself up in love. It's a it's a gift. It's a gift to us, certainly. But I think the idea of it being this cosmic gift from the Father to the Son, it it places perspective like you're talking about on why it matters that I'm in my Bible, that I'm on my knees praying, that I'm with the, my brothers and sisters in Christ and not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together, which I think, I'm not trying to bust on you guys, you're all here, so thank you for being here. But, but that shows the importance of it, of, of why we do that. It's not just because, well, I want to be a good person. If you're called in Christ, if you're in Him, there's value and significance placed upon us that we don't have inherently. It, it's placed upon us by a Father, the, the Father, loving the Son and the Spirit sealing us for that gift. It's a big deal. And it's not just this individual, private thing. No. You know, we, we go off in a corner, and, you know, way far away from the church and everybody else when we read our Bibles and pray. It's a personal thing. It is, but it's not. Yeah. Because it matters. It affects everybody else. Right. Right. You, you're, you're affecting the gift. Not, not, that, not that we can take away from God's power in, in presenting a gift, but that we're caught up. It matters what we do. I want to be on board with that and how I live and how I'm a steward of my time, my talent, my treasure, to use old Baptist phrase. Uh, I, want to be, I want to be conscious of I'm not my own. I've been bought with a price, and here's why. Right? So, yeah, good. Anything else? No, no comments. You sure? Okay. I'll pray, and we will um, we'll move on. There are no words, Father, for the idea, this picture, this expression in Scripture of the cosmic significance that you have worked in redeeming a people to yourself as a love gift 
to Christ. This, this idea, this covenant of redemption is described as a marriage covenant. It's described as a covenant of glory whereby each of the members of the Trinity are, are glorified in this and we certainly see that. It's humbling and thrilling to think that you would use us as a gift and, and see us as redeemable and redeem us for the purpose of a love gift among the Trinity. What a phenomenal thing. And we are so unworthy of it. Would you continue that work that you began in us? Would you push us further into loving Jesus more so that we despise all of these other yippy little idols at our heels? That we see Him for who He is, glorified, enthroned, conquering, beautiful, merciful, and eager for us to reflect Him as He reflects the Father. May we work while He's working in us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.